everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of The Writer's Haven. I'm your host, Musu of Musu Writes, and this week's episode features guest Ade Adeniji, holistic coach, group facilitator, and consultant. So in this episode, we're talking about, about personal development and branding, which is something a lot of people are looking to do or are already doing. You may have a message or a story that you want to share to help people or to just raise awareness on a certain issue, but you're not quite sure how to go about doing it. So I think that listening to this episode will give you a a pretty good start. It'll give you some great insight, if anything. So please take a listen, make sure you subscribe and let me know how you liked it. Enjoy. I wanted to, you know, just talk with you about um, your story and the different things that you're working on. Um, I see you wear a few different hats. You're a consultant, group facilitator. And so I just wanted to, you to talk to me more about that. Like what out of these different titles, is there a main title for you that you go by? Um, in terms of um, professionally or? What, yeah, what? professionally. Yeah, I, I wear many hats actually. Um, you know, there's always been this notion of a portfolio career, mm-hmm. um, which I really love. Um, so my background is that I initially trained as a lawyer, um, wow. but never never practiced because while I was at law school, I discovered employment law, labor law, which I really loved. And through that, I moved into human resources and um, I worked in human resources for in organizations for about 15, 15, 18 years, doing a variety of roles from being an employment law advisor to being head of human resources, being an HR director. And while I was HR director, I trained as a coach. And so I left the corporate world about 10 years ago. My intention was to work as an organizational consultant, so still doing the human resources bit, and also doing coaching, personal coaching and life coaching. Um, But life kind of took me in a different direction um, halfway through because I made a new friend who was also a coach. We set up a project working with gay men. Um, The project is called The Quest. It's a social enterprise. And um, that's, that sort of grew, actually, out of nothing. Mm. We started it in 2011. And the program is really about helping gay men connect with their authentic self, their wholehearted self. Um, and, yeah, so I do that. I also run workshops based on the work of Brené Brown, um, who... Are you familiar with her, with her work? I'm not. Can you tell me who she is? Okay, so Brené Brown is a researcher at the University of Houston, and she did a TEDx talk, I think it was in 2010, on the power of vulnerability, which went viral. And um, in her work, she talks about shame, she talks about worthiness, she talks about vulnerability as the birthplace of innovation, creativity, um, you know, connection, love and belonging. And in our work with gay men, we referenced her research. And in 2013, we were lucky enough to meet her and she invited us to Texas to train in her research. So we run programs based on her work and 
um, the work really is around helping people connect with their hearts so that they can come from a place of, you know, being in alignment with their values, not coming from a place of shame, but coming from a place of um, shame resilience. So in terms of my work, I'm not, and I'm sort of giving you a really long answer to this. I know, it's fine. <laughs> in terms of my work, you know, I work with individuals in and outside of organizations, so personally and professionally, and I also work with teams. So one of the things I've been doing a lot of recently is around helping teams function better. I also work with um, individuals in organizations around conflict transformation and helping people have those conversations that they might normally avoid. Okay. So you, you've made some very interesting moves over the years. You started off in law, then you went to human resources, and then you were able to launch your, I, I, can I say your consulting um, business or your consulting platform? Yep. So as far as your personal story, how did, did that intertwine with your career path? And if so, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, when I, was, when I was in high school, a lot of my friends knew what they wanted to do when they grew up. You know, they had an idea. I wanted to be a lawyer, a doctor, an accountant, um, a journalist. And I had no idea. I did not have a clue. Um, my head was in the clouds as it were and very often what would happen is a friend would say this is what they wanted to do and then i wanted to do that as well um, and then another friend would say this is what i wanted to do and then i'd want to do that and that's how i sort of fell into law a friend of mine had talked about becoming a lawyer and i thought okay yeah i'll be i'll be a lawyer um, you know my family background was very much around education so I know that my parents wanted someone who was educated, who was a professional, you know, a doctor, lawyer, accountant. And um, I wasn't good with, with the sciences, but I was really good with the arts. So I sort of, you know, got into law in a way to please my, to please my parents mm -hmm. and in a way to get this sense of worthiness, I'm good enough. And while I was at university studying law, I already knew that it wasn't for me but it felt like I was already on this conveyor belt, you know, you've got to go to law school after, after studying law. And so I went to law school and it was while I was at law school, I thought, actually, I'm really not enjoying this law business. And I finished law school at the end of, um, was in the middle of the recession. So this was in the, in the late nineties in, in the UK. And it was really challenging to get a, what they call a training contract, which is sort of like an apprenticeship over, uh -huh. here, over here in the UK. It was really difficult to get that. And then I thought, well, actually, I already um, love employment law. Maybe there's something here that I could, I could, I could do. Um, I was already working part-time with the civil service. And so I naturally fell into recruitment and recruitment you know, led me into employment law and then employment law led me into human resources. So it all started off from a place of, of um, wanting to please, from a place of worthiness. Mm. And, and through that, it emerged to where I am today in terms of coaching, consulting, and facilitation. And so with, when you said you came from a place of wanting to please, you know, I just wanted to ask, um, you, were you born and raised in London or did you come from 
an African country and come to London or how did that, how did that go? Yeah, great question. So my parents um, are from Nigeria. They're, they're, they're both past now, but yeah, they're, they're from Nigeria. Mm-hmm. And they, they came across to the UK in the mid-60s. And there were tons of West Africans who were coming across yeah. during that period. You know, most of the countries had gotten their independence in the you know, early 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they were coming as my father would say, in search of the golden fleece. Uh, And, you know, many of them came to study. And so I was born whilst they were studying in the the late 60s. And this was a period where a lot of West African families, when they had kids, they would put them into voluntary foster care Mm. whilst they continued studying. So I went to a foster family, a white foster family in Kent, which is outskirts of London, and I was eight weeks. So I, I was with my foster family between eight weeks and five years old. And mm-hmm. between some weekends and the holidays, uh, my parents would come down. From time to time, they would take me back to London to stay with them. But I was with them, the foster family for, yeah, for those formative years of my life. And mm-hmm. in the early, mid-70s, mid my dad went back to Nigeria and a year later, my mom and myself moved to Nigeria. So that was my first time in Nigeria. I think I was about, I think, six, six going on seven. Hmm. And I was in Nigeria from that age till I was 19. So when I was 19, I came back to the UK. Okay. Wow. So most of your childhood, it's with the foster family then? Yeah, yeah. Wow. It, it, yeah. That yeah. is interesting because, I mean, I'm... You know, like uh, my parents are from Sierra Leone uh-huh. um, and they did the same thing your parents did, except they came to America to study. And so they ended up having, you know, their children here and all that good stuff. Um, so I didn't go back to Sierra Leone. Um, I went once when I was a toddler. I don't remember. But after that, I didn't go back until I was an adult. But oh, wow. um, I, for, you know, for a couple of reasons, I, I bring this up, uh, the expectations that you know, African parents tend to put on their children when it comes to their, you know, careers and stuff. So I totally get it when you say um, you, that's one of the reasons why you went into law because you, yeah. you, know, you were trying, you know, from a point of trying to please. Yeah. Uh, so, and that's really interesting because I saw, you know, the different pictures that you had uh, posted on uh, Instagram. I, I personally had, I didn't know that uh, they were doing that back in the 60s and 70s with the foster family. Yeah. Um, so the uh, I think the exposure that our family had was um, uh, with my parents. They grew up with a lot of the white missionaries, American missionaries that were going to West Africa at that mm-hmm. time. Yeah. So that that whole influence is there. But you know, I just figured I should. I just I was just curious. You know, as to yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. That's wow. Um. And so now with what you're, you're doing now, um, it, it, it seems like you have a, a very expensive platform. Um, what are some of the things that you've done so far that have been, you know, inspirational to you to keep going, if you don't mind sharing one or two stories? Um, no, not at all. Not at all. Um, yeah, you know, I think for, for a really long time, I used to feel that, there was this place that I will get to and then I'll feel worthy 
I will feel enough because I had this sense of there was something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. So going back to living with my foster family, even though I wasn't able to articulate it, and it's only as a result of doing a lot of inner work that I've been able to connect with it. One of the things that was going on was, you know, looking around, I was very often the only black kid there, mm-hmm. you know, in that, in that part of um, Hythe where my foster family were. And somehow I started to develop this feeling of being the outsider, mm-hmm. you know, being the one on the fringe, the one who is looking in. And, you know, when my parents moved back to Nigeria, when I was, you know, six going on seven, I was the kid who came from overseas and I was treated differently. Um, I was the kid who was left-handed. So again, I was the different one. And, you know, at the time, I remember family members saying things like, you know, to eat with your left hand is an abomination. Don't do that. It's wrong. It It was a really big thing. And then when I was 10, I developed alopecia, which meant I lost all my body hair. Mm. And again, I was then the kid who was different, who didn't have any hair. And in my teens, when I started to recognize that I was gay, there was also that thing about, oh my God, here we go again, you are different. So this Mm -hmm. sense of feeling broken, feeling damaged was really huge for me. And going back to the career, one of the things that I felt was, if I became a professional, if I became successful with this status, um, I would have the security, I'll, I'll be loved, I'll be accepted, I'll get this sense of belonging that I've always craved. So career-wise, I always went for big brands, you know, organizations that people would know when mm-hmm. they heard the name, because I felt that by being associated with those organizations, people would look at me and go, yeah, Ade is worthy because he works for so, so, and so. Mm. And then in my early 30s, I, um, a relationship I was in ended and it ended really badly. And when I paused and I, I thought about it, I thought, actually, there is a thread that's going through, through my life. And that thread is I'm drawn to people who somehow emotionally abuse me Mm-hmm. Uh, and I allow it because it's so familiar. And when I thought back, I thought my father was very much that way. We never really, I never really felt that sense of connection with him. Mm-hmm. And so I thought there's something going on here. I need to go within and do the inner work. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I went off and I did what a lot of um, a lot of people sometimes do, which is try to find the solution in God. Um, I didn't know about spiritual bypassing at that time, but. I now recognize that that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to bypass my pain and um, Mm. connect with oneness. So I joined an interfaith seminary um, for two years. So I'm also an ordained interfaith minister and spiritual counselor. And whilst I was doing that process, I was like, I need to go deeper and look into the psychological issues as well. And as a result, I went on a program called the Hoffman Process. I don't know whether you've come across that. Also, yeah, it's huge in the States actually as well, um, internationally, in fact. And it's a process that really helps people connect with the patterns that they took on from their parents and caregivers when they were growing up. And that was really an eye opener for me because through that process, I started to, you know, forgive myself, forgive my parents, forgive, um, you know, my foster parents. Mm -hmm. And 
that kind of led me to this place of, I also want to work with people on taking them on this inner journey, inner journey to connect with their authentic self with a view to living a life of, um, a life that's liberated, actually. So, you know, the archetype of the wounded healer is something that really resonates for me. So I think my past pain, my past wounds and scars really have helped inform where I am in terms of my career. Mm-hmm. What I- hmm. Wow, that is so interesting. I don't even know where to start because I have so many questions. Um, you said it was called the, the Hoffman process. Is that the, the name? Hoff- yeah, yeah, that's right. The Hoffman process. Okay. Um, no, I have not heard of it, but I'm jotting it down because I, I may just end up doing, you know, additional research on it later on. Who introduced you to that? How did you um, come across that? Um, I read this book, I forget the year, um, by an author, British author called Oliver James, and it's called They F You Up as in your parents, wow. like, yeah, they F you up. Wow. And in the book, he talks about the Hoffman process. And I was like, oh my God, I need, to look at, I need to look into this. I went online, read up on it. And at the time, I was really struggling around the, the, the stuff I was carrying regarding my parents. Mm-hmm. So when I came out as gay, my father had already passed. Mm-hmm. And my mom was still alive. And I told my mom about me being gay and... She took it really badly. You know, we didn't speak for a few years. Mm. And as a result of that, I recognized that there was just a lot of resentment that I was carrying towards my parents. There was a Mm -hmm. lot of betrayal that I felt, a lot of grief. Mm -hmm. And I was really looking for something to help me, um, yeah, actually to help me move through all that stuff. Yeah. Um, I'd thought about one-to-one therapy um, and I kind of felt, I want to do something in a group. I wanted to do something in a group and I wanted to do something that was intensive. And so after reading this book, I thought, yeah, I'm going to look into the Hoffman process. Mm-hmm. So I did that. I didn't know anyone who had done it up until then. Mm. Um, I basically just threw myself in. It was a, I think it's seven days, seven days residential. And it was, it was really, really intensive. And one of the things I, I say to my friends is, it's almost like, not, actually, not, not as if there's, it's almost like, it actually is. It is a case of there is an ADE before the Hoffman process and there's an mm-hmm. ADE post-Hoffman process. So I really notice how, how different I am. You know, the big, the big difference is before the Hoffman process, I felt that I was living on the surface of my life, mm-hmm. making do, not really going deep in terms of, connecting with myself or connecting with others. And since the Hoffman process, it's really allowed me to, to go to, to that depth. So, you know, prior to the Hoffman process, I will not be able to have the conversation I'm having with you now and mm. talk about my scars, my wounds, my bruises. Mm. Um, I'd simply be staying on the surface. And that process really allowed me to be able to, to meet whatever is there, knowing that yeah, it's okay. And it's part mm-hmm. of the human experience. And it's part of what I experienced. Did this process help you or um, help improve your relationship with your, with your mother or your family? Um, oh, that's, a, that's a, 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 really, a really good question, actually. Um, so at the end of the Hoffman process, I recognized that 
you know, I needed to sit down with my mom and have a, a heart-to-heart conversation. Um, she was living in Nigeria and I traveled back to Nigeria to be with her. What had happened was I came out at 27 to her and um, in the years that followed, we never talked about me being gay after that. It was almost like it never happened. Mm-hmm. And from time to time, she would say to me, when are you going to get married to a woman? And so after the Hoffman process, I recognized that I needed to sit down and have a conversation with her and in a way come out to her all over again. And we're talking about, I think about a 15-year gap, roughly, mm-hmm. something like that. Mm-hmm. So I went, to, I went to Nigeria and... Um, sort of a week and a half into my trip, I said, I want to talk to you about something. I sat down with her and I said, you know, I want you to know that I love you. Um, I know you did the best that you could as a mother and, you know, know that I love you. And I also want you to know that, you know, I am gay and I am happy with where I am. And she was like, what do you mean gay? It's an abomination, it's a sin. This is not what I brought you up to be. Thank God your father is dead. And, you know, it went on, it went on and it was really painful stuff. Mm-hmm. And what I recognized through that conversation was, you know, she wasn't able to give me the love that I was looking for, mm-hmm. that, I, that I felt I needed. And in the conversation I was having with her in that moment, what I also recognized was the sort of love that I was looking for in my partner's was that sort of abusive love that she was showing me in that moment, which was so familiar to me. So I was always drawn to people who would say like really cruel things to me and, you know, be emotionally unavailable, not be able to connect. And so when I got back to London after that trip, I got in touch with her and told her that I was going to be breaking contact um, from her because I needed to learn how to be with accepting love with nurturing love and so you know we brought contact and you know I told her that it wasn't because I you know had not forgiven her or anything like that that I was coming from a place of of self-love and the big thing that came out of that for me going back to your question was I met my husband I think two months after that conversation with my mom and you know my belief is I needed to be in a different sort of energy in order to allow that sort of love that I know is nurturing and wholesome to to come into my life. So yeah, in terms of the relationship with my mom, the Hoffman process, what it did do was it allowed me to love myself and set up boundaries in terms of who I allow into my space and who I um I sort of disengage from. It's very interesting, actually. There's um, a book by Desmond Tutu um, and his daughter, The Book of Forgiving. Mm. And they go, I don't know whether you, you've read it or, or come across I've, it. I've heard of it. Yeah. And they go through these stages, stages of forgiveness. And the, the, the last stage that he talks about, which I really love, was we renew or we release the relationship. And I really, lo- I really love that permission to release the relationship. That is what I did. And, you know, and I constantly checked in with myself, you know, to ask myself, am I coming from a place of judgment here in releasing the relationship? 
And what it always came down to was actually, it's not from that place. It's from a place of self-compassion and from a place of, of um, learning to love myself mm-hmm. in a way that I never knew. Wow. Uh, that, you know, just listening to you, you know, I, of course, I'm naturally, you know, thinking about, um, you know, different experience of, experiences I've either seen or gone through myself. Yeah. And um, you made, you know, really important points about setting boundaries, especially when you go through, you know, different types of journeys, such as the one you described. You yeah. went through this process and you were a different person than before the, you went through the process. And yeah. that's going to have an effect on the people that have been in your life, you know, such as your family or your longtime friends. And we really do have to reach a point where we make that decision where especially if it's a if it's an unhealthy relationship where it's, there's a lot of turmoil involved either i'm going to keep dealing with this or i'm going to set a, a boundary and you know and continue with my life because it's it's just not healthy for me and what i'm trying to do and you know we accept the fact that the, the person the parent the friend or whoever they're not they're going to continue to be who they are yeah. so we just have to make our own um, decision from there. So with these different things, are, are these some of the topics or some of the things you cover in your group facilitations? Yeah, they, they are. I mean, it's, um, it varies depending on the context. Mm-hmm. So with the work that I do with gay men, what we do is we take them on a journey back to childhood and start to look at the stories that shaped who they are in the present day. Mm-hmm. So we look at the themes that were emerging when they were young, the limiting beliefs that they were you know, cultivating during that period and how those limiting beliefs show up in the present day, as well as the coping strategies. So pretty much the sort of things I've been talking about, we, we do in the work with gay men. With the work um, we do using Brené Brown's research, it does touch on that as well because, you know, we, we look at shame, you know, yeah. very deeply in terms of, you know, the childhood messages that we received about who we are in adolescence as well, how that shows up in the workplace. Yeah. So in, in, in that work, I also do do that. With organizational work, it's always very interesting because in organizations, um, it's about psychological safety as well. Mm-hmm. So there are some people I've worked with in organizations where they haven't felt psychologically safe enough to be vulnerable in that way. So again, that needs to be boundaried. And, mm-hmm. and in some cases, it might not be appropriate to, you know, to overshare in that context because some people might feel certain things might be used against them. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I, what I do try to do regardless of whether it's organizationally or personally is really try to help people, you know, connect with their inner world. And then they make a choice in terms of who they invite into that inner world. Awesome. Awesome. And with your consulting, uh, do you go to different um, human, uh, you may have mentioned this earlier. Do you go to different HR offices or organizations and and do these facilitations, or do they come to you and you hold a separate session outside of the workplace? How is it set up? How does that work? 
Yeah, it's a bit of both, actually. So I have gone into organizations. So one of the things I've also done in the past is I've done interim assignments. So when I've gone into an organization and I've been there for a period of time, um, from three months to, to a year, um, working in their human, res- human resources departments in a variety of functions, um, there are times where I've gone into organizations to run programs. That's probably the one that I do the most. And the programs vary from diversity, inclusion and equity to, okay. yeah. to courageous conversations, to emotional intelligence, um, to conflict transformation. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I was running a program with an organization on mediation. So training up people in their HR departments on how to come from a mediation you know, perspective as opposed to the traditional grievance, you know, listening Mm -hmm. to grievances or disciplinaries. So trying to help resolve the issue before it got to a formal stage. Um, I also do things like investigations, where I go into organizations investigating Mm -hmm. issues around bullying, harassment, Mm -hmm. sexual, racial, you know, um, discrimination. Now, one of the, the th- I won't get into my <laughs> occupation too much, but one of the things I do deal with on a daily basis is trying to implement a, um, what they call a treatment versus punishment approach. Uh-huh. If you're having a problem with an employee or a problematic employee, um, you know, they're creating, you know, bad elements to the work environment or they're not showing up, whatever. Um, we try to educate managers, supervisors on how to best deal with situations like that. And it falls under the umbrella of, because what you described is very similar to what we call the, the whole trauma-informed workplace. Yeah. To, um, you know, just educate the, the management on what's going on with people and how to best deal with it. So say, for instance, um, someone gets uh, a citation for drunk driving, well, especially if it's their first time, you know, they're, you know, whatever the situation may be, you don't want to just come at that person and say, well, this is a disciplinary action you're going to have to take, blah, blah, blah. No, kind of find out or do provide whatever resources to, to see why that person is behaving that way and then help them, let them get the help that they need versus suspending them or, you know, whatever the case may be. Yeah. So what you're doing, um, it sounds very similar to, um, what I what I deal with and what they're trying to implement in the workplace now. Yeah. Um, so, and is this something that you see? Your is it just local for you? Do you see yourself doing it internationally, or are you already there on the international level? Um, yeah, I've, I've done a few things internationally. I mean, recently we were out in Nigeria doing a piece of work, mm-hmm. uh, which was around daring leadership. And then mm. leadership is about coming from a place of no armor, you know, coming from a place of authenticity, from a place of wholeheartedness, from a place of being open and being courageous mm. rather than that traditional punishment yeah. that, you were, that you were talking about. Um, so, yeah, that's something that really speaks to my heart. One of the things that a lot of people talk about these days is, the human has been taken away out of human resources and it's simply a case of, you know, resources. A lot of people I talk to in organizations, what they say is they feel that when they go into organizations, they need to leave 
the humanity, the humanness at the door and come in as this robot who just follows processes. Mm -hmm. So a big part of my passion when I do organizational work is how can we bring that humanness, that humanity back into the workplace? And very often when people hear that, they think, you know, um, what we're advocating is, you know, it's a free for all, free range, you know, anything goes. And that's not the case. It goes back to that boundaries point that we, we were talking about earlier on. Yeah. Um, you know, and that, that's, that's really crucial in terms of having those boundaries at place. And it's about how can we have those boundaries and at the same time make it clear to people in terms of what's okay, what's not okay. Mm-hmm. And I think very often those conversations are, are not being had. And that ties in with the second thing I do with organizations, which is really helping them create cultures where people can have those courageous conversations. Mm-hmm. A lot of the work that I, that I do in organizations, one of the things I, I sort of find out eventually is that the problem arose ages ago as a result of one person or two people or the group not having that difficult conversation. And then what happens is that it festers for a really long time and then it ruptures. And then there's this huge domino effect that brings about all sorts of resentments that were, that have been lying dormant for a really, really long time. Mm. Yeah. So I think, I think creating cultures where people can, yeah, can, can, can be open, can be honest, knowing that they will be heard knowing that there would be that there would be there would be an opportunity for them to engage in dialogue now are you an author because it with all this information it sounds like it should be in a book you know (laughs) (laughs) thank you thank you um yeah one of my one of my um i don't even know the word to use for it weaknesses one of my my demons is procrastination. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I keep on meaning to sort of sit down and write something. Mm-hmm. Um, I have published stuff. I have, um, I have shared some stories in a series of anthologies, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them is called Love Me As I Am. And mm-hmm. that's gay men telling stories about their lives. I have a, a story in there. And in fact, I co-authored um, that mm-hmm. for other people. And then there's another publication that came out in the UK some years ago, which was looking at the black and gay experience in the UK. Mm-hmm. And so I contributed to that as well. Um, oh, okay. But yeah, something it's, it's, it's on my radar at some point. So thank you for the, the beautiful reminder. <laughs> no problem. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it seems, you know, so valuable what you're sharing and with, you know, people just looking to become more informed these days. And, you know, there's so much information out there. It's just good to have um, information that's reliable and resourceful. So if I, you know, especially when I see that someone has a personal story such as yours, and we're like, hey, well, are you going to write about it? That's usually my first question. So thank you. Yeah, keep, keep, uh, keep us updated, you know. I, I will do. Thank you very much. I, I will. Yeah. <laughs> So I had one last question. Um, what advice would you give to someone who, who knows they have to use their personal story to help people? What, how, what would you advise them as far as how they should go about um, making that happen? Making that happen, that as in sharing their story? Yes, and using it to you know, create a platform just like how you did. 
Yeah. Um, what if, if someone was, you know, they knew they had something, they knew that they had an experience that was impactful and it would probably help other people, but they don't know how to go about doing it. How, what, what advice would you give them? Um, I mean, there's sort of the, the two levels of, of advice. There's the inner stuff and then there's the outer stuff. So mm-hmm. there is something around really, yeah, delving into the story, connecting with the story, um, exploring whether the story is still an open wound, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's a scar, whether it's a bruise, because there are times where people share a story and they're sharing the story because they want the audience, the listener, to heal them. And so it's about being clear in terms of where am I at with this story? Is this mm. still something in progress? Or is it something that I feel actually um, the wound has started to heal and I can tell the story without being triggered? Uh, because I think that's, that's really crucial, actually. It's really yes. crucial in telling those public stories that we are telling it from a place of, I know I won't be triggered, or if I'm triggered, I know that it's not going to knock me off my center. So that is one, I would say people check in with themselves in terms of those stories. And then the other thing in terms of the external, what I would say is start with sharing those stories, you know, with loved ones, with people that, you know, that we trust and love and who trust and love us. So with our close inner circle, sharing those stories that way. Um, And then, you know, we can start going out in terms of, there's so many storytelling forums out there now uh, where people can go and tell stories on stage. Um, You know, there's stuff, you know, in terms of podcasts, you know, blog posts. So there are many, many ways that people can bring those stories to to the forefront. One of the things that um, Darren, who is my co um my, my business partner with the work i do with gay men one of the things that we started doing a couple of months ago is um having this event that we call hush now hush is down and myself telling stories on stage so what we did was we jo- we got in touch with the venue and we set up something on eventbrite and then invite people to come and listen to us share stories on stage now mm-hmm. that's uh, it's very simple for anyone to do that yeah all you need to do is find a venue. And in terms of the venue that we found, we were able to negotiate whereby we got the venue for free um, so long as people bought food and drinks at the venue. And, and that, was, that was how it happened. So I think people can start small, you know, in terms of um, practicing with people in their circle, then finding other ways to start bringing in more people to, to hear those stories. But the starting point, I would say, is to be clear in terms of the stories that they're sharing. Are they coming from a place of woundedness and looking mm-hmm. for healing in, the sto- in telling the story? Or are they coming from a place of, yeah, this story is not as activating as it used to be. And mm-hmm. I feel that it will be beneficial for me and for the listeners to, you know, for me to share that story. Yeah. Does that, make, does that make sense? Oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Uh, th- you know, there are different things to consider, and the way you just explained it from the two different levels was perfect. All of that needs to be taken into consideration because a lot of people, you know, they have good intentions, but then they'll just jump into things without really um, filling them, their cells out first and then thinking things through. And, you know, they don't get 
the results that they were looking for or, you know, nothing really happened. So it's important to consider those things that you mentioned. Yeah, yeah, really, really important, yeah. You know, because the, so, the ego can kick in very easily in terms easily, of... Easily, yeah. Yeah, it's about keeping that in check. Exactly. So how can people get in touch with you? How can they connect with you? Um, so um, I am on Twitter. On Twitter, my handle is outtail. So that's O-U-T... Um, T-A-L-E-S. I'm mm. also on Instagram with the same handle. And in terms of um, websites, they can find me on walkwithyou.me. That's walkwithyou.me. Mm. And the work that I do with gay men, in, that can be found under thequestforgaymen.com. Thequestforgaymen.com. Okay. Well, yeah. Or if, they just, if they Google my name, which is Adeya Denijif, first name A-D-E, last name A-D-E, N-I-J-I, um, something will come up and they, will, they can find me that way. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really did appreciate this conversation. I learned a lot um, from you. And uh, you. <laughs> yeah, we, you know, I always love having people back. So once you get started on that book, I'd be more than happy to chat with you about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for the conversation. I've really enjoyed it. It's been really beautiful um walking down memory lane with you and also hearing you know some of your stories as well so thank you very much for inviting me on oh no problem no problem and um, i will touch bases with you